hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host Paula Wiseman and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with comedian, writer and performer Joe Caulfield. So hey Joe, thanks for chatting with me today. You are very welcome. Well, we all love to talk to anybody that's not someone in our house. <laughs> I know, I know the feeling so. entirely. Um, so let's start with, let's go back in time to your, your school days. What were you like as a kid? Were you one of these funny kids or were you quite quiet? I was a mixture. Yeah. Uh, I was a complete mixture of I was funny with my friends, um, but other people might have said she's quiet. Like I know that people had very different opinion of me. And I always remember that from like school reports that, you know, some people thought I was like really well behaved, good little girl. And other people were like, she's constantly talking in class and up to no good. And I think it, I was always like, I'll see how the land lies, but if I can get away with stuff, you know, then I can do. But if if that's going to push it too far, you know, then I'll just act like I'm well behaved. Um, but I was always I, I did get in trouble a lot, but for such ridiculous things, mostly uh, just being overexcited, talking uh, a game that would go too far. Um, and I it was like I would be in a group of my friends sniping at the sidelines <laughs> from an early age, I think, uh, you know, and uh, and there was people you know, go, oh, God, look at them who were just seemed too perfect. Um, that I always had a problem with those kind of people. I thought, oh, I don't like them. They seem just set on a path for success, but in a tedious kind of a way, you know, so I was always a bit like, oh, I don't like them and I can't put my finger on why. Um, but um, yeah, there was nothing that made anybody go, oh, she'll go into comedy, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it? When you're in school, you kind of, you, you never really know how how people are going to end up. It's always the unexpected ones that end up with like 15 children and, you know, single parent and all yeah, this kind of funny, stuff. Yeah, it's funny, but it's also funny how other people see you. I do remember uh, a yeah. friend, and we'd lived together like in my 20s, and then we'd lost touch. And this was about 10 years ago, and we got in touch. And we went out for a drink and it was really nice to see her, but she kept saying how peculiar I'd been. <laughs> and she kept going, oh, but you're so weird. Girl. You're just like so weird. And I was, was I? how was I weird? Like, I, I, and she never put a finger on it. She was going, oh, but what were you like then? And I thought, well, I think I'm exactly the same now as I was when I was in my 20s. I'm, I'm more confident is the only thing that's different. But it was weird to go, but what was it that was different? And then I said to someone else, I said, oh, she kept saying I was weird and different. And they went, you know, an odd. And they went, well, you are a bit odd. And I said, I really don't think I am. <laughs> so, yeah, I think everyone sees you differently. Yeah, that's the thing. Your, me your memories of school days, do you know what I mean? People, people talking about you as a kid are totally different to your own, you know, memories of what you were like back yeah. then yourself. And a strong memory of school is that I really hated and still do being told what to do, like to the point yeah. of rage. Um, and I remember <laughs> telling the sports teacher to piss off in hockey <laughs> because hockey, you know, there was rules. And if you raised your stick too high, they'd go, ooh, sticks. And I was like, oh, it seems so fucking stupid. And I wasn't that good at it. Um, so she blew the whistle and went sticks and I was and I just thought what a stupid rule so I just went oh piss off and it was a massive deal and I knew as soon as I said it I was like oh I don't think you can say that um, and then 
the excitement at the same time being excited that I'd said it and that this was yeah, going to yeah. be drama but I sort of knew that I wasn't you know I wasn't going to be in terrible trouble but it was a lot of trouble so I knew there was no danger involved in, you know I wasn't gonna be expelled or anything but at the same time I was really excited that I'd said it and it was a really great release but I had that a lot with just and I remember thinking like when I leave school I thought I had this thing of I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell them all the teachers, the ones I didn't like, what I thought of them. And I was so angry. And then, of course, you leave and you, you never think about those people again, you know, until yeah. you meet one maybe years later. And you went, oh, God, you, you're the person that I hated so much. I mean, what were your aspirations when, you know, you, we, all, we all had the whole career advisor thing. You know, you sit in this office and they're like, well, what, what do you want to do? And at that age, I mean, you know, there's no kind of you just want to leave school and be done with it. Very much. I wanted to leave school and be done with it because that was part of the rules thing. I wanted to I didn't want to ever. It was weird because it wasn't I disliked school. I went to quite a lot of schools um, because my dad was in the Air Force. So and then I went to a boarding school. And then when he came out of the Air Force, we didn't have money to pay for that. So then I went to a comprehensive. And then it's when I was in the like sixth form there that I was just like, I just want to leave school and I feel I've, and I liked that school. I really liked it, especially after a convent. Comprehensive was great, but um, I just didn't want to go back to school anymore. And I remember the careers advisor coming and even then, um, like I was 16 or something, I thought, what a ridiculous question. What do I want to do? I don't know. I don't even know what jobs are. Like I had a job as a waitress. So that was my experience of it. So I thought, I don't even know what you can become. And I think I said, I had two things I would say, you know, if adults asked you what you want to be, I said, um, a diplomat. <laughs> I don't know why. It was just a thing I said, because I remember my friend's mum recently saying, I remember you saying you wanted to be a diplomat and thinking, oh, she knows. And I thought, God, adults are so dumb. Because I'd said something so obscure, like a diplomat, they thought, oh, she's really <laughs> thought about that. But it was clearly, I think I'd seen some old films and they lived in lovely colonial houses in warm climates. And they said, oh, that's the diplomat. And I thought, well, that looks good. I'll be one of them. And I think I said something like that. And I do remember saying, I'd like to have something to do with maybe films. And he said, oh, would you like to do acting? And I felt too embarrassed to say, yes, I want to do acting. And I think that's also the thing the careers advisors don't know. They don't know you. They're a complete stranger. Yeah. Why is a 16-year-old going to open up to you? You're not. So when he said, do you want to do acting? I saw myself through his eyes and I thought, I just seem like this quite awkward, quiet girl. So I better say no. So I say, oh, no, I don't want to do acting. He said, oh, would you like to do um, like stage management or something like that? So I went, oh, yeah, I'll do that. No idea what it was. But I said, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> I remember the meeting going, this is just a lies. He's lying. I'm lying. What is the point of this? And then I let also. Yeah. I ended up working in Sainsbury's for my work experience. because I had no clue, you know, that you don't know what the world is, you know, or how you no, can no get idea. into these jobs. Yeah, I worked in the supermarket. I, did you like it? I really liked it. I thought it was quite fun working in the supermarket. I don't know. It was a bit, it was a little bit boring, I suppose. I, I worked in a shoe shop as a Saturday job. That was all right. You know, it was okay. But that's the thing, you know, you, you don't know. And they're, they're expecting you to plan your GCSEs around what you want to do ultimately, what you want to go to college for and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, I don't know. I just don't know what, what I can do and what I can't do, you know. 
No, not at all. And you make you like like had to make ridiculous choices about O levels as they were in my day. Um, and I remember you had yeah. to and even at the time I thought this is a dumb choice. We had to choose between geography or German. And I was like, well, I think those two go together, don't they? I would need to know where Germany was if I was going there to speak German. And you could think, what a ridiculous choice. And you had to choose between arts and sciences, which I think they don't do now um, because they've realized that the brain can cope with both, but you had to very much go. And so I went down arts, but just then, even then you're like, I think it was 14, you had to make those decisions. I don't know. And even on my A-levels, I didn't pick the subjects I was best at. I picked the subjects I liked because I liked the teacher. And that seems stupid as well. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? Well, don't do French, Joe, because you're useless at it. But I liked the French teacher because he smoked. He smoked um, uh, gauwas, these, you know, all white cigarettes. And he had, he wore a leather jacket and corduroy trousers. He was like really cool. And also he went to France. So I'd never known anyone go to France. So I just thought, well, I want to get in with some of that. That looks fantastic. I was thinking we're, we're both quite similar in our upbringings, both born in Wales, both oh, raised yeah. in England, uh, both moved to another country to live. So how do mm -hmm. you feel that that's kind of impacted you as a, as a person? Do you think sort of the, the moving around that you did during your yeah, move, younger um, years? Yeah, it's always, it's always difficult because you don't know what it would be like to come from somewhere. I'm quite envious of people that come from yeah. somewhere. So they have somewhere to go back to. But at the same time, I've no idea if that feels good or, or not. Um, so the yeah. Welsh thing, and also the Welsh thing was funny because my parents are both Irish. So they're from Northern Ireland. So they moved over. I sort of accidentally was born in Wales, but as a kid, <laughs> it was very much, I knew I was different because my brother and sister were born in Ireland. So they were Irish and I was yeah, like, yeah. as a joke, they would go, oh, Joe's Welsh. But it stuck with me that I thought, oh, so I, I would much rather be Irish. That seems more interesting because I can't really claim this Welsh thing, I don't think. And then, then moving around in England and then Scotland was, um, I sort of coming up here to perform a lot and I felt very, at home with Scottish people because they reminded me of my relatives in Northern Ireland. There's a similar harshness yeah. <laughs> that I like. Yeah. A similar kind of, oh God, you know, don't you ever think anything of yourself, we'll put you down sort of a thing up here. Um, <laughs> and a sense of humour where people can say things with such a straight face and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if that's a joke or not, you know, and good talkers and so, uh, and then it was also just wanting to get out of London for a bit and uh, have a bit more space. Just we went further than other people. Yeah. But at the same time, I wanted to live in a city. And I'd looked at a few places on the outskirts of London. And I thought, oh, this is neither one thing nor the other. I want to be in a city. So then came mm. to Edinburgh. But I also still feel that I'm a Londoner because I go to London so much for work and I miss it if I don't see it. But at the same time, I love that here, where I live in Leith, I'm, yeah. I'm five minutes from the sea. But at the same time, I've got the excitement of living, particularly this area, because it's the old docks area. It's a very mixed, you know, area of this hipsters. But there's also, you know, there's a lot of deprivation here, to be honest, um, of things mm. that the government haven't worked out yet how to deal with. And I find it's an interesting mix. All human life is here, which I like.
um yeah. I, I realized that i thought oh i would never want to be in a nice house in a nice residential suburban area i would go and say i like the fact that if i yeah. walk out of my house go around the corner i don't know what's going to greet me at the bus stop you know i like that it's exciting to me and i think that's sort of part of being creative that you you like that but that sort of mixture of life and ages and all sorts of different types of people but at the same time i've got the beach nearby if i want to kind of look yeah. out at horizon and feel alone you know i can do that too yeah i mean you've got people like phil jupiter's you know he, he moved to uh, i think he's not far from you up there in scotland yeah he took a totally different you know went back to college and all this kind of stuff and it just, it's just about i don't know finding a new environment and sort of expanding your experiences I suppose. Yeah. And weirdly, I get more done here than in London because London's so vast yeah. that, you know, like yeah. where I live, it only takes me maybe 10 minutes on the bus and I'm in the centre of town or 20 minute walk. So I can go into town, come back, do some work, go for a walk, come back, go out for the night. But in London, it was like if you'd gone into town once, that was it. You're like exhausted and you go, oh, well, I can't go, you know, and you can't afford to live in the centre of town. We live like in, in North London, but on a tube line and stuff in Finchley. But oh, it was yeah. a bit like not really living a city. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about your sort of getting into comedy initially. So, I mean, how did it start? I know you you worked with uh, Graham Norton and he's been a very, a huge part of your early days in comedy. Yeah, Graham didn't do stand-up for very long. So yeah. I was already doing stand-up and I met Graham because it used to be a thing of like, if somebody's dropped for a gig out of London, who's the driver? I was the driver. So, and we were going to Chester, which is a long journey from London. Oh, and yeah, I'm a slow yeah. driver as well. So we kind of bonded <laughs> on the journey, like we had a good laugh and and I remember him at the gig thinking, oh God, this guy's act is really odd because it's not really an act because he hadn't really done stand-up. He'd gone to drama school, then he'd done some one-man shows. He'd done his show where he wore the tea towel on his head as Mother Teresa. Um, <laughs> and I just remember him doing a, a routine about topiary and the audience were looking at him like, what the hell is he talking about? So it was quite camp, but then it was when he talked to people in the audience, that's where it came alive. And you're like, oh God, this guy is really, has got something here. But he was still sort of floundering around a bit, not really, not yeah. gigging that much. And I was running a comedy club. So I booked him to be the compare. So he did a bit of that. And then he got that, uh, the TV show that he did with Maria McAlain right. about people's sex lives. I can't remember what, carnal knowledge was on late night Wait. on channel, maybe channel five had started then, or maybe it was late night channel four. Um, so he was doing that and I, and sort of learned, he always says it was a great thing because he learned how to do telly when no one was watching. So he learned sort yeah. of what he was yeah. doing. And then he got a pilot for the TV show and they said, oh, you have to have a TV warm up," and he didn't want one because they were all blokes then. And yeah, the producer, yeah. I'd done a warm up and he said, oh, there is a woman that does it, Joe. And he said me. And then Graham went, oh, I know her. I've met Joe. So I started doing the warm up and then I started writing on the show. And what it really did was is I learned a lot about writing, writing jokes, but also it bought me time because it, 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 
I was then able to go, well, I can go to Edinburgh Festival. Uh, yeah. I can not have to just just do clubs just to get the cash because I've got some money here. But I, I mainly, I really learned a lot about writing writing material. Yeah, I mean, you, you've written for some huge, huge, huge names in comedy. Graham, obviously, Ruby Wax, Joan Rivers, to name but a few. So how does that work, writing for somebody else? Um, do you, are you kind of given, are you given a framework to, to, to work around? Or, you know, it must be very, very different to writing your own, to write your own material. I always say it's so much easier to write for somebody else because usually right. there is a framework. That with Graham Norton, it was a topical show. With Joan Rivers, you know yeah. the kind of joke she wants. But when you're writing for yourself, you're going, oh, I can write about anything. And then you can't think what to write. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's so much more difficult. And also, I'm not going to have to say it. When I'm writing for somebody else, yeah. I'm not going to have to say it. They are. But when you're writing for yourself, you're like, God, is that funny enough for me to say outside, out loud in front of people? Because I'm the one who's going to have to say it. So then you do a lot more sort of scoring out and going, well, no, I don't know if I could say that out loud. Um, whereas other people, you can just hand it to them and it's up to them. <laughs> I mean, that, that is it. It would be that, the total opposite. No, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I prefer writing for myself and now I do just write for myself, but it's harder because there's too much choice. I think any, everybody would, everyone would say that comics are going, there's too much choice. Um, and sometimes if you try to look at it as like, I've got to write a thing on this. Uh, and that's why Edinburgh Festival is good because it gives you a framework. It gives you a, a deadline to make you write stuff that you have yeah, to say, yeah. otherwise you reject everything, you know? But if I, if I go, well, I've got to, there's nothing. I've got to come up with some stuff and I have to say it on Wednesday night because I've booked into this thing to do my new material. So you've got to come up with stuff. Um, because very quickly without a deadline, I won't come up with anything. Yeah. I mean, how, how does it work like time-wise? Do they say, oh, I need this in a week or, you know, what kind of turnaround? Well, there's a strict thing, especially with Graham, you, you were such a fast turnaround. At one time he was doing the show uh, five nights a week uh, and we yeah, recorded yeah on the Thursday so we were having to write two monologues a day so you would come start with Graham in the morning saying we'd go through the news he would say what stories interested him he would kind of riff on stuff and so you'd yeah, write yeah. down any kind of things he said and go oh that's what he's interested in and then by midday you've meant to come up with a first draft and then the producer not Graham the producer would read them out in Graham's voice um, which would always be weird, but I think Graham wanted to be fresh to it. So he liked to hear the producer doing him. And then the, they would reject jokes or, and they would go, right, these are the ones to work on. Or sometimes, occasionally, there's nothing, start again. We'll get different subjects. And then by sort of five o'clock, you've got to be ready to start a re rehearsal in the studio. And then it would be, did the crew wow. laugh? And that would be the first time Graham would say them out loud. And he would then play to the crew which actually had a huge influence on it. And he was like, well, if they laugh, I, I, because they're here every day, they're bored of comedy. So if they laugh, I know it's a good one. And then, so he would do them once yeah. then. And then the next time would be in front of the, the live audience. And you would have that excitement of if jokes worked. And they pretty much yeah. always worked. Occasionally, there would be occasions where they wouldn't work. And I do remember one where me and the writer, Rob Colley, we laughed and laughed at this joke so much. 
And it was something to do with somebody hitting someone over the head with a frying pan and to do with a doctor. I remember us saying, oh, well, I do it three times a week, hit myself over the head with a frying pan. And we couldn't stop laughing. And both Graham and the producer, when they read it, they didn't think it was funny at all. But we laughed so much. They went, well, I'll find it funny. We'll do it. And the studio audience, nothing, absolutely nothing. But yet in the corner, me and Rob, the writer, still killing ourselves. And we thought this was the funniest thing in the world. So it's, it is that weird thing. Because sometimes you can get it completely wrong. Yeah. And Joan Rivers, I just say she's, I think she's also somebody, I mean, I just really, really admire her and her work ethic. And she's always worked with writers and she's very good at yeah. spotting a joke that's right for her, changing a joke to make it more right for her, knowing who her targets are uh, to keep you mm. on side with her as well. So that was that was just a, a one-off where they were doing a pilot and she asked, are there any writers here who can write some jokes? Give me a couple of pages. And um, so I was one of the people, and then she took some of the jokes I'd written. So I was obviously wow. I was hugely pleased because she was, you know, she was one of the yeah. first. People it must have been I so did. daunting, though. You know, somebody like Joan Joan Rivers, you know, such such an iconic <laughs> comedian. You know, it must have been scared to death. It's a job. You've only got a certain amount of time, so you don't think like that. You think yeah. you, yeah. you're immediate. Your brain's going right. What can I write? That what would Joan Rivers think about this? What would she think about that? And you're just sort of doing it. It's a, um, it's only afterwards that you like I was really thrilled that she'd taken some jokes and I, I also just I really admire her for keeping going and for yeah. still always being a comedian wanting to have new jokes and go out there and you know when people after 9-11 when people in New York said she her at her age was one of the first people that was out in a little club making jokes about it because going we have to what, are we going to not make jokes anymore because they did this to us? Fuck them. No, here's my jokes. Mm. And I love that about her. Yeah. I mean, do you think, is there anything that is taboo, would you say, as a as a comedian? Is there anything that you kind of, you feel that you wouldn't go near as a comedian? You know, you've got people like, I'm always kind of saying about Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr kind of says there's, there's and Ricky Gervais as well. You know, they kind of say nothing is taboo. Everything is kind of there for the for the taking. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree with them. And it's all about the context. It's all about yeah. the intention of the joke. And often it's all about whether it's a good joke. I've, there's nothing I found more yeah, offensive yeah. than a bad joke, meaning bad in terms of the technique of it. You go, that's a badly written joke. Yeah. It's just not very funny. And if the subject also happens to be a subject uh, that people, you know, could be squeamish about or could take offence at, well, then you better get that joke right. Otherwise, you've just said something offensive. Um, there's also, and Jimmy Carr is um, gets pulled up all the time. And it's always yes. journalists in an audience taking something out of context. Because I think the thing about being in a room when someone says something is totally different to on television. Being in a room with someone, like if they bought a ticket to see Jimmy Carr or if Jimmy Carr's in a comedy club, I feel like we're we're in this together. It's a contract between me and the audience. And it's like yeah. our secret thing. And uh, I'm looking them in the eye and saying this. They know it's a joke. I can say some terrible things. And I can say terrible things to people in the audience. But I always yeah. look them in yeah. the yeah. eye. 
they've got a right to reply. I'm not bullying someone. And that's the difference when a journalist goes, oh, and they said this and I go, if you were in the room, that felt totally different. It felt totally different. So there's nothing more annoying. And it also there's nothing more annoying than it's usually Radio 5. Oh, Jimmy Carr or Ricky Gervais <laughs> said this. We do understand that it's not offensive, but we've decided that we will just for a cheap bit of radio, we'll say that we think it's offensive. Let's call up a comedian and let's talk about why things are offensive. And you just go, look at their careers. Clearly they know what they're doing. Yeah. They haven't made an offensive remark thoughtlessly. They've made it very thoughtfully. So have another yeah. look, have another listen, and you'll find that it's actually either very funny or often the case of Ricky Gervais, he's pointing out something to you. Yeah. Something in your own yeah. prejudice is what he's pointing at. So it's just, it's a real bugbear yeah, of mine. I, mean, I would just wish people would shut the fuck up about it. And also the other thing that's really fucking <laughs> annoying is people going, um, usually people who know nothing about comedy in that they don't even have a good sense of humor going, oh, well, you can't say anything now. Often cab drivers go, oh, that must be hard being a comedian. You can't say anything now. I always go, what exactly do you want to say? They will then usually say something homophobic, racist or misogynistic. And I go, no, you can't <laughs> yes. say that. I mean, that's the thing with Jimmy Carr. Do you know, with Jimmy Carr's audience knows you know they wouldn't go and see him if they didn't they thought oh god he's too you know he's going to come out with something offensive and I'm, I'm i'm going to be offended by it you know what you're going to see if you go and see a you know if you go and see people like jimmy carr for for instance yeah and i also think that sometimes people are looking to be offended um mm. and you might do a joke uh i've got a joke what could be worse um, a joke of a, of a child dying of a terminal illness. Now, if you're in the audience, you could a journalist could take that and go, it, I just can't believe it. she does a joke about a child dying of a terminal illness. Is there anything worse than that? No, there probably is nothing worse than life than losing a child to terminal illness. But does that mean that that's not a good joke? I tell you, it's a great joke. And I've never had anybody in an audience, but there could be people in the audience that that happens to have happened to, and they, yeah, they yeah. might feel that. And that is never my intention. But I always think there's people in the audience, you don't know what shit people are going through. And that's why I go, we have to keep making jokes. And I've also had people yeah. in the audience. That's why, you know, some people fixate. They go, what do you do if someone in the audience is not laughing? And I think, I don't know what's going on in their life. Something terrible may be going on in their life or have just happened in their life. Them not laughing at me is the least of it, you know. And I just think that's as you get older and shit happens in life. So people, you may say something that touches on something that's happened in somebody's life. But people do jokes about cancer. My sister died of cancer. I don't go, how dare you do a joke about cancer? My sister died of cancer. If it's a good joke, I will laugh at it because I think, that's what life is. It's all of those things together. Yeah. You know, it's why people laugh at funerals, don't they? People always laugh at funerals. People laugh in hospitals because that's what we do we, we to get ourselves yeah. through everything. Yeah. Well, it's much better than everybody sitting around going, yes, I totally understand. That must be really terrible. Would you like to talk more about it? No, I'd really rather have a laugh. No. Than be too, you know, be all earnest about everything. So, yeah, so I think there's a lot of nonsense talked about what is offensive. And, but at the same time, I have watched comics 
and gone, I find that offensive because it's bad comedy. And sometimes yeah. people, to me, choose wrong targets. Um, I can think of a few comics, big guys, big, intimidating guys doing material uh, that I think is anti-women. Uh, and it comes across yeah. that way because they're a big, strong, uh, their persona is a big, strong, in control bloke. Now, if they were a little weedy mm. guy or a little, oh, uh, nobody would ever love me guy and they do stuff about women, we know why they're doing it. We're going, of course you hate women because they <laughs> don't know we're fucking near you. You know, like I would say that about um, Jerry Sadowitz is very good at that. Like he can say some terrible things, but you know that no one hates themselves more than Jerry Sadowitz hates him. <laughs> Like the self-loathing yes. to me lets him get away with stuff because he is saying to you, I am a twisted, fucked up person. That's why I say these things. So we're on board. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, otherwise other, other people are going, no, you're just kind of being a bully, which isn't as funny. That dynamic is wrong in that joke, you know, but I know I'm ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll say something about myself and uh, be very superior. But I, the audience know that I'm laughing at myself. You know, like I'll say a line like, um, you know, I was thinking about slowing down on the drinking because I don't want to get all kind of worn down and haggard looking before I hit my 30s. And then people laugh and I'm like so offended, like fuck you people. But then they laugh again because they know that I know that I don't look 30, <laughs> you know, and that, that I'm being ridiculous and, and making fun of myself. And also sometimes the fun is, how mean can I be to somebody? But I always pick somebody who can take it. Mm. You know, I, I yeah. pick somebody usually who comes across, they come across as quite high status or, or a very good looking man who's well-dressed or something, you know, so I can pull them to pieces because they can take it. And as a group, we enjoy doing that to somebody who seems to on the outside have everything, you know? So I think you, you've got to pick yeah. your yeah. targets. And sometimes I've seen people, that's why I say, said about looking people in the eye, because I've seen comics and they're kind of dissing it out to the audience. But I thought, oh, but you're not looking at them. You yeah, are yeah. frightened in case they say something back to you. You can't do that. You have to look at them so that they have what I call the right to reply. At any moment, they can say something back to me if they want. But I have to look at them so they know it's a joke. We're just having a laugh. It's a joke, isn't it? I don't have to smile, but I'm looking at them. But I think comics yeah. don't then, I thought, oh, you're frightened of the audience and that's not fair. You can't, that's a real bully where you're, uh, you're not letting them punch you back if they want to. Yeah. People don't, yeah. but you know, they've got to feel that they can. You've done a lot of warm-ups for TV shows over the years, including Have I Got News For You. So, I mean, how do you, how do you gauge your audience? Is it the same as doing a gig or do you have to change your material for those particular audiences how does that work yeah warm-up is completely different um because your role is different and it's a weird combination because you have to be um you have to put your ego aside because yeah. you're not there like your jokes aren't important what is important is making this tv show and that the audience is a good in a good mood and will laugh and enjoy the tv show so especially when I used to do sitcoms, that's a long recording. And sometimes they have to do a scene again, it does make you hate actors because you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, can you just learn your lines? 
And of course, actors always think it's funny. Oh, I forgot my lines. And I'm like, well, I've got to go on again now. And then, uh, but the thing is they will, and then they have to reset the scene. So they have to, if there was a coffee cup, they've got to put everything back, which takes a few minutes. So I, if you would start telling a joke and then as soon as the floor manager goes, okay, we're ready, starting to record, you have to shut up and run off. And some comics, and it always surprises me that they don't realize some comics can't deal with that. They're like, oh, it's awful. They just, you don't get to do your joke. And I go, yeah, but as long as you tell the audience, I tell, that was one of the first things I'd say to the audience, you'll think I'm really weird because you'll go, well, that was just odd. She just told us something with no punchline at all. And it didn't even have an end to that sentence. And that happens. And sitcoms, you'd have to, you have to make it about the show. So I try and do material that was to do with the subject matter or the scene to keep their focus on the show. Because often people don't realize this sitcom that they see that is half an hour on telly, it's going to be two and a half hours to record. So sometimes it's literally keeping them in the building. It's also the weird time of day it is because it's normally, they normally start about seven or half seven. People have queued, they've come from work, they've queued up, they haven't had their dinner and they yeah. thought they'd be out of there by half eight. And now it's half past nine. So they want to go home <laughs> and you've got to keep them. Uh, have I Got News For You is different because one, it's a much shorter recording, but also yeah. uh, there's no stops. And the audience is so thrilled to get a ticket. You know, it's such a, iconic show and people love it that they're really happy to be in there and they just I just literally I do the beginning I warm them up and then I don't have to go on again because there's only one break unless something goes wrong and Paul and Ian yeah do the chat you know they've always thought why would we not chat to the audience then that seems rude <laughs> you know so they they do they do that and that audience is but there's things I have to be aware of. Like I try not to do topical material because what if I say a joke and somebody else who's waiting to come on was going, oh my God, she's just done the same joke I was going to do. Because in topical material, that is the one place where you do think of the same jokes because there's only yeah, a certain yeah. amount of ingredients that you're dealing with and you're going to come up yeah. with, you can come up with very, very similar jokes. So with that one, I try to not do topical material uh, also try not to swear at all because yes. it's always been a thing that they don't particularly swear. Ian never swears. Uh, and then maybe once every other series, he might say fuck and it's a big deal. And it, he, and it's hilarious. When it <laughs> and Paul likes to swear judiciously. So I just right. don't swear. Because then it's funnier when the people in the show swear. And, and I think that's pretty much true of all warm up. Like, save those things because fucks, you can't do many on telly. So you want to save them. So let the people on the TV show have them. Um, and I would just try and do sort of, you know, very, very broad comedy kind of supermarkets or stuff. And I would do stuff about the audience, often quite flattering to the audience because there would be. It's quite a highbrow, like some of the jobs that people did who were sitting in the audience. You're like, oh my God, these are, have I got news for you people? And then occasionally I get someone and go, oh, I think you're Anton Deck, they're next door. You know, you do that because, because that was the <laughs> kind of feel that the audience feel that they're quite special, that they've been chosen to be in the have I got news for you audience. Yeah. You know? Ian and Paul, they've got such a great rapport, haven't they? They're just, you know, they've obviously, they've been working together for so, so long. They know kind of how to set each other off. Oh, they set each other up really well. 
and you know and they are <laughs> friends and they do respect each other enormously yeah. which you can tell but they also have that little rivalry you know paul never lets go that ian's been to oxbridge and he's posh and paul merton you know was like secondary modern or comprehensive yeah. and south london working class you know so that that's always there but at the same side they're both on the side of i always say on tr of side of truth and justice you know they're on the same side in that way yeah yeah i like the way that paul interacts with the audience as well do you know what i mean the, the, the little glances and stuff it's it kind of adds really adds to the to the show and the atmosphere yeah well know? i think he's a sort of a master of how to be on television for a long time because also yeah. some shows you'll see he doesn't do much. And sometimes if he feels he doesn't have much, he doesn't do much. You know, he doesn't do bad comedy. So he'll save himself and go, well, you know, this week, um, there's not that much really that, uh, that I've, that's made my brain spark. <laughs> In other weeks, he's really sparky. Um, so you kind of wait to see what are the things that will interest Paul. But like you say, he uses the audience, he uses, the guest hosts and also the audience perception of the guest host. He he use and yeah, then yeah. or sometimes he'll be using Paul or the guest. He'll use as many things as he can to find a way to play. He's all about the play, Paul, and improvising yeah, and yeah. making it not just reciting a pre-prepared gag, which so many panel shows are. That's the thing Paul tries not to do, or if he does, disguises it so well that you don't know that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When you see things like Mock the Week and you, know, and you hear all these things about how, how rehearsed some of the bits are and all that kind of stuff, and you're kind of like, oh, it, it kind of ruins it a little bit. Do you know what I mean? As, as a viewer, when you find out these, not secrets per se, but the, mm. way that things, the way that things are done behind the scenes kind of thing. Yeah, that's sort of the level of production on it, that it's not that things are rehearsed, it's just that they will say, these are the topics we're going to talk about and everyone then writes loads of jokes you know yeah, writes yeah, and writes yeah. and writes and 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 then we'll have your jokes with you at, on the the day as thing where you're when you're recording so unless there's room for a bit of chat you need a bit of that freedom um and there's a lot of room and have i got news for you for things to happen but mock the week just because there's so many there's like six comics and the host all with their gags yeah. that they want to get on so i think that's why sometimes that can feel too tight in a way whereas if i yeah. get news for you there is much more room for things to happen and for people to find comedy in a, a different area that you weren't expecting not just about the topical subject mm, yeah i mean it's like uh, would i lie to you has become huge you know yeah. over the last few months and it, again it's about the rapport between the team, oh, completely, team captains, yeah, yeah, that's uh, team captains, you know? yeah, beautiful field, and Rob Brydon as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we talked about uh, about TV. So radio, it's become a great outlet for comedians, uh, like a different platform and showcasing what you can do with the spoken word. You know, you're not physically there and people can't see you. I mean, Radio Four in particular has been great for uh, comedians and comedy series. So has it been a good tool for you? Uh, join your career. I know you've done a lot of radio over the over the years. Yeah, I think when I um, when I first got a Radio Four series, which I got completely uh, <laughs> by accident, in that it was my first solo show in Edinburgh, 
and I'd been messing around with this woman in the front row. I'd been quite rude to her, actually. And uh, then when I asked her what she did, she said, um, my name's Caroline Raphael. I'm the commissioning editor for comedy on Radio 4. And I was like, oh, there. And then she stopped after the show and said, oh, I really enjoyed it. Um, have you any ideas? Bring me an idea. And so she commissioned a show. Um, and then you, then, you, <laughs> then you go, oh, my God, that's it's all words. Like you've, there's a lot of script in comedy uh, for radio. Um, but what it did, which was really good for me, was it sort of, it gave me enough of an audience to start touring um, so that I could do little art centers and people would come because they knew the Radio 4 show. Um, I think now that that wouldn't happen so much because there's not, there's too many in a way that they sort of commission now in a, people don't often get recommissioned. So there's like, you might, you might get one or two and there's a series of shorter, they're threes or fours, whereas these were sixes. So people got to know you more. Um, so that, that was a really big thing for me that I could go out on tour and, and not do clubs as much. Um, I did then go actually weirdly, then I, you know, you go through cycles of things and then I toured for about five years and then went, oh, do you know what? I really like clubs and I was doing more other kind of work. So I thought I'd want to do clubs more than I don't want to be on my own tour in the country anymore. So I went back the other way to then doing uh, clubs. And I, I think it's all that that keeps you sparky and interested. Like I then like the, the, the quickness of clubs, you know, and how outrageous you can be in them um, uh, and not and not being responsible for people's entire evening <laughs> as well. Um, which sometimes I really like on tour. I really like that this is entirely my evening, my audience. And then sometimes in a club, you go, oh, great. What? This is just 20 minutes, no responsibility. It's like a one night stand kind of a thing. <laughs> and the tour is like being in a relationship. <laughs> you know, it's it's richer and it's different. But sometimes you go, oh, I'd just love to go over there and fuck that bloke. You know, <laughs> and that's what, that's what a gig is like, you know, just hopping around, you know, especially in London where you might, might be able to do a couple of gigs a night, you know, and just go from one to the other like that. Great feeling. It, it just keeps you really tight and you feel like you're firing, you know, because you're, you, you, you're having to be so quick and adapt so quickly to different rooms. Yeah, as, as, as that's it. As many different things as you can do with comedy. Yeah, it's like you hear from actors, you know, that they'll work in telly for a while and then they'll say, oh, I, I fancy doing some stage work. And, you know, and then they'll go into the West End for a bit and then they'll kind of, to try and keep their yeah. work interesting, they, they just want to mix it up as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it because you, you know, you didn't get into this to not care about it and not feel excited by it. You know, then I'd be as well, I was going to say, go and get a proper job, but I'm not qualified. <laughs> so I actually couldn't get a proper job. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, like Paul Merton, you know, we were talking about him earlier and he went into the, he was going into the West End last year, wasn't he, to do, uh, to do hairspray. He was supposed to be going yeah. into hairspray and obviously with lockdown and stuff. Again, he's a, he's such, he's got so many different facets to him. Yeah. And I think also he, I mean, he's very wise in, in that because he does improv and he still does yeah. it with that improv troupe, that yeah. keeps him alive. So you don't become mm. that dead behind the eyes person doing television where you think everything you say is funny. 
he's still doing it in yeah. a live environment, which keeps him sharp and funny. So I can see why he would want to, if someone said to him, do you fancy doing hairspray? He'd go, wow, I think this, I'm going to find out all sorts of things about myself doing that. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. What's the thing? You're, people that are not known as being singers. You know what I mean? Paul, Paul's not known, obviously, for his uh, yeah. for his vocal talents. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about Edinburgh now. Obviously, you're living there. Um, so you've been doing regular shows at the Fringe for a, a good few years now, and obviously, it's not been uh, not happened last year, and I think it's not happening again this year. Um, most comedians seem to have a lot of stories from over the years and uh so i mean have you got any any kind of like bizarre happenings in, during your time in uh, at the at the fringe i don't i don't i suppose i've i've sort of been doing edinburgh so much that i a lot of people go they have trauma is what they have they go oh i've got a story <laughs> what they mean is they're, they're traumatized by it because they go up with this unreal expectation or often an agent will say look Let's throw £10,000 at this and at the end you'll be a star. And halfway through they realise, fuck, I've wasted ten grand. Nothing is coming from this. Yeah, yeah. I don't even like my show. And they either <laughs> drink drugs, breakdowns happen, you know, they don't cope and then it's traumatic. Um, but then if they came back another year, if they find, oh, but I like doing it because that's my job is to write new jokes. Mm. And if you build up an audience, because audiences go, and I know there's not, not just me, there's lots of comics who are like this, who will go, audience will go, oh, we go and see Joe, or we go and see Carl Hutchinson, you know, because we've seen their shows before and we've enjoyed them. And uh, she's on our list now, that, you know, of people where we know it's worth 10 quid. And I also do yeah, only yeah. ever charge quid like as if it's only an hour it's not a fucking evening with and people are going like 19 pounds <laughs> on a saturday night and you know there's a lot about the edinburgh festival that i think rips people off both performers and artists um i, I can't even remember i mean it was also the thing of you're you're living in weird flats um when you're coming yeah, up to yeah. do it so people often going have traumas as well because they're going, oh, we didn't realize why it's cheap. It's because there's building right outside. So, you know, they start at seven in the morning and my last show was at three in the morning, you know, so there's that thing. Um, but I, I think often it's pressure comics put on themselves or their agents put on them because they say, you know, the carrot of Edinburgh, because some people, it has changed their life. They have become a star from Edinburgh, but you go, but weren't they going to become a star anyway? Weren't they really talented and ready and had a great show? And that would have happened that somebody would have seen. It's just that it's concentrated because somebody saw them and they won an award because there's plenty of people who've won awards who you've never heard of. But I could say names of comics and you'll go, who are them? And I go, oh, they won the Perrier. Oh, they were nominated for the Perrier uh, 15 years ago. Yeah now they're a teacher you know it's it's people you know it's that that stupid bloody ten thousand hours thing where he goes oh you have to do ten thousand hours to be for it to work you go no there's millions of people doing ten thousand hours it just happens that if you are if the light is shone upon you you do have to be ready and have something to sell but they could shine the right on the yeah. person next to you and they'd be ready and have something to sell as well you know so I, I think 
you have to be sort of realistic and, and sometimes especially if people are younger or more vulnerable you have to go to edinburgh going just concentrate on your thing do a good show enjoy your show learn from it be a better comic try and make those people have a good time you have to be really blinkered i think and uh, and not worry about everybody else and not worry about who's getting attention and who but you know that's hard it's hard for people to to do that but it's kind of you can't have one without the other you can't um say oh i don't care about reviews and then not use them you know like now if i get a good review i'll use it if i get a bad review i will try not to have seen it <laughs> but i've seen it you know <laughs> but but i i'm much more hardened because now of course you know it's not like a bad review is going to mean i don't have a career it has no effect at all yeah. but a good yeah. review is uh, some nice words on a on a poster or on my website you know so then you just use it. it's just like a tool um you've also got to realize that the people i always say most a lot of the people reviewing comedy not everybody but a lot of them pff, know nothing about comedy you know i always think <laughs> of it like you know anybody is allowed to review comedy so they tend to review it on the lines of this isn't to my taste or this is to yeah. my taste um whereas i think i've always thought music critics they mostly came from a passion and they know everything about music and they've often been musicians whereas comedy critics was was just be anyone that would go oh you get free tickets and you feel kind of important and i'm going to give my views and i'm like oh fuck off you know you, you will have no effect on my life either way. i mean that's the thing i so, mean um as a punter you, you go and see a show and you want it to feel like to feel like it's the first time that this has been heard from that, do you know what I mean? From that comedian. Yeah. It must be so hard as a comedian. You have to love your show that much that you'll do it. You'll do, you're literally doing it every night, sometimes twice a night. Yeah. yeah. How do you keep that spark? That's the skill. I mean, that, to me, that is yeah. the main skill is that that's your secret. That's the sort of dirty secret that both the audience and you know, you've said this before mm. and they know that. You know, but we don't yeah. talk about that. That's why, and there became a thing where lots of comics would talk about jokes and material. And I never like to say the word jokes and material because that ruins the magic. You know, we both yeah. entered into this thinking that this is now, you know, and it, it, you know, and there are routines that I come up to, certain routines in your festival that you love more. You know, maybe people like people say about children, you go, I really love doing this routine. I never tire of doing it. And then other ones you go, oh, I, I feel the love going. And that's when you have to go. I sometimes I'll go right, go into it. What are your feet? Look at what your feelings are in it. Why did you used to be more angry about that? Why did mm. you used to say, why did you say it in the first place? You have to find your reason for saying it. And yeah. sometimes it's good to have an outside perspective, you know, like if a friend comes and they'll go, you're a bit dead behind the eyes on that one, or I didn't quite leave you on that. And you go, oh, right. Sometimes you don't realize. And you go, oh, yeah, I've lost, yeah, I've lost yeah. the love. And it, it's a constant. It's an absolute, and I, you know, that's why I'll put material aside and go, right, I'm not going to do that for a long time. And then when I dust it off, bring yeah. it out again, I go, oh, I love this. How did I ever put this aside? And often then you find a new way of doing it, you know, and I think of it like, you know, musicians do this with songs, don't they? You know, and then they go, oh, I've suddenly thought of a yeah. new way of doing that song that I did, you know, and that can happen. But I think in the festival, sometimes 
And that's what's great. And, you know, a live audience gives you that life as well. You know, they are a big part mm. of it. You know, as soon as they're with it, you're like, oh, you're buoyed up again. And, and, and all of that excitement is there. Um, I also usually have something in the show that is an audience, what I call my audience piece, which is a back and forth between us. But it's structured, so I know where I want to go with it. Yeah. But it's a bit of looseness where anything can happen and what does happen is dependent on those people that night. You know, and they know it. Yeah. They know that Karen, who is a bit strange, she's not coming back. Or maybe she is because she's strange. You know, but whatever she said, that's a that's a thing that's happened tonight. And you know, and so that's it's and it's also just remembering to again to look at people to you know it's you you're constantly kind of having to relook at your performance skills and also remembering why you thought this was funny in the first place and why you're saying it there was one year i think and i sort of got tired and uh, so i changed the order around so that i'd kind of be surprised <laughs> you know that i had to make my brain <laughs> work to go what the fuck's coming next or oh, i don't know but it gave it a, <laughs> an oomph which i needed um so to do yeah. that but but also mainly it's so i know because i've done that a lot i know how at the end the last week you're going oh i'm gonna miss this show so it's letting yourself in, enjoy it but at the same time the beginning you're always going oh god this is gonna go on forever uh, but even though I know <laughs> last week I'll be going, oh, this is nearly over. I'm going to be really sad when it's over. But that's, I think, the nature of comedy is often you spend half your time going, oh, I don't want to do this. And then when I'm on stage, absolutely loving it. And I think part of it, me sometimes has to do, has to kind of go down in order to go up on stage. Mm. I suppose it's like being in a band. Do you know what I mean? Every night you're coming out and there's a different audience. You might have the odd odd few little, you know, little ones down the front that come every night. Um, but every night you're coming out to a totally different reception. Yeah. And it's sort of, uh, it, uh, it sounds wanky, but it it is organic. And it does depend on sometimes night of the week or just a vibe. And often that's not to do with you. And sometimes yeah. there's there's only what there is in the room. You know, like sometimes I'll go, God, this room is so alive. They are in such a great mood. This is nothing to do with me. They're just yeah. in a great mood. There's something about this room. There's something about what happened before they came in, that this room is alive and these people really want a good time. And then other times you go, oh, it's Tuesday. They're a bit tired. This is as much as there is in this room. And they don't think they're not having a good time. They're just not like, ooh, 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 ooh. they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's fun. And if you, that's why you got, you know, don't ever berate an audience for their reaction because they're thinking, oh, but we're being a good audience, aren't we? And you're like, yeah, but you're being a bit Tuesday. But that's all there is on that day. You know, you can't get more out of it than that's there. And, and sometimes there's just, there's no accounting for why an audience is suddenly just amazing. I mean, there's certain things like a Saturday night crowd feels like a Saturday night crowd. And people will say, oh, that Wednesday crowd, they were like a Saturday crowd because the Saturday crowd is carefree. They've dressed up. Yeah. They're already yeah. having a good time. And you're just a bonus. You know, they're going to have a good time with their friends, whether you start talking or not. 
but the when a Wednesday crowd is like that, you're like, oh, this is amazing. So sometimes you 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 got to be also be honest with yourself and go, that was just in the room, you know. And then other times yeah. there's you know odd, odd atmospheres. Other countries can doing it stand up in other countries is often funny because they judge you in a different way. They're kind of looking at you like a specimen often, I think. Like when I've done gigs abroad, they're like, oh, this uh, English, they always think I'm English. English woman, she thinks this and that. And it's like they're watching a lecture, which always is kind of weird. But then I, I also am talking about them as though they're an experiment, you know, this audience, how different they are to other audiences. And age sometimes yeah, is- That'd be so is, weird. I mean, have you have you played any weird venues? A lot of comedians seem to like. I played in a. It was like a toilet or a, you know, something bizarre. You must have played. Oh, I've played, played places terrible. Your career. No, what what might be considered terrible? I mean, I suppose bands would talk about. They would go like a, you know, it was a real dive and it was tiny or whatever. I think, oh, that sounds great for comedy. What low ceilings, not much room, perfect. Um, what for <laughs> a comedian is terrible if if you if you're driving up to what are they called any kind of leisure center i go oh god oh god yeah. so you're basically in a massive sports hall with huge tables and massive stage one of those sort of atrium ceilings and you just go oh jesus yeah. christ because that's just the comedy just dissipating into that space and that's and it's and you can't fill it you know you can't turn up your guitar it's just the so those are the spaces that comics hate but at the same time, as we found out in the first lockdown, when people were doing outside gigs, you'd be turning up to somewhere going, oh, this is absolutely my worst nightmare. So basically, I'm on some crates in a field and the people are all in little clumps six feet away from each other. This is hell. But it wasn't <laughs> like that. Comics were arriving going, oh, my God, I can't wait to get on stage. And the audience, were, it worked because the audience was so keen. They were willing it to work. I did one where it was a yeah, bowling yeah. club, and it, but it was outside. So the audience was on the bowling <laughs> in these little circles that they'd painted for them to sit in. So they're all separate to each other. It was freezing, started to drizzle because it was Manchester. Oh but at the same God. time, it was just a great show. And the only thing one person said, can everyone talk faster because it's cold? <laughs> so it was like, we want this comedy, but let's all try and get through it really quickly. <laughs> you know, uh, but there was, again, that was the willingness for this to, to work because people really just wanted that connection and to, and to have a, a laugh, though. Yeah, it's just totally changed, isn't it, in the last year? The way that people have had to, you know, obviously uh, it's affected comedy, it's affected music, theatre. Um, I mean, how has it affected you, lockdown? I mean, obviously you were saying that you've embraced Zoom and doing stuff on Zoom. So how, have, how has it been for you the last year as a, as a comedian? I've had, uh, because also because I live in Edinburgh, uh, I, would I was traveling a lot. So the first thing yeah. was, God, I didn't realize how tired I was from traveling every single week, you know, doing long train journeys, long drives every single week. So at first yeah. I was like, oh, that is quite nice. I don't mind a bit of a break. Uh, and then, uh, as I was saying to you before we started recording, the fact that in the first week of the lockdown, I was booked to do a TV show that they then said, 
oh, you can do it from your home on the computer. Yeah. And they sent me all this gear, lights and green screens and all a microphone and stuff that they then said I could keep. So I was like <laughs> a crash course in technology because I didn't know any of this. Yeah. And then went, oh, I'm set up. And at the, and then when someone said, oh, somebody's doing a Zoom gig. Oh, okay, what is this? Oh, right, Let, I can do this. And sort of working out how to make it work. And I've actually found Zoom gigs, they're, they're different. I know some comics don't like them, but there's an intimacy about them, which I like. Because the other, I did one the other night and because they open up the room. So whoever is the front row, which is 20 people who've, just, who've said, they will be happy to be seen and heard. And the rest of the people are just right. watching that. Those people were all chatting to each other and they're from all over the country. Some of them, one woman was in Australia. She was having a breakfast and she'd gotten into these comedy Zoom call things at breakfast time. And I thought, it's so lovely. These people are connected because people will connect in, you know, no matter what you put in front of people, they will try to connect with each other, which I thought was kind of amazing. Mm. And then the added element of, I can see their front room or their kitchen or where they are. So I have something else to play with, which I find exciting, yeah, yeah. which because I love to judge people and, and kind of work out what kind of people they are. And everybody else can also see their front room. So we're all doing it to each other. So I thought, oh, there's a whole <laughs> here that we can play with. And it, it quickly made me, made, I had to write new material because you couldn't do material about stuff that wasn't happening. Um, yeah, so yeah. that that was good. And that material, I mean, they're saying we may have lockdowns again. So I go, all right, mm. I've got my, you know, it's like having your Christmas material. I've got my stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, and even that, but even the lockdown changed, because remember the beginning was all like queuing and shortages. And then that was gone. Yeah, and then lockdown yeah. changed. So even in lockdown, there would be people are going, oh God, they're still doing queuing material. How hack is that? You know, like it changed and you would have to update <laughs> to whatever the lockdown was or to, oh, we can go to bars, but they take your temperature as you go in, you know, which I feel under pressure to get drunk then because they put so much effort in. So you had to keep, you know, updating. I think I've missed, I've missed comics. I've missed a green room. And I think yeah. comics have said that to each other, but we've also been the very supportive community like mm. the sort of Facebook groups. And I have a couple of friends that will have Zoom drinks every couple of weeks, you know, just to connect and talk about stuff the way you would in a green room or randomly someone will call you and just go, oh, yeah. I wondered how you were doing in this, which is really nice because I think comics, we, we, <laughs> we have a lot of time to think anyway, but I think we're all quite aware that we're on a bit of a roller coaster of adrenaline yeah. and people going, I haven't got that adrenaline rush. So I feel down, whereas, you know, a lot of people were saying that was I have quite, quite busy. So, um, yeah. so and with the zoom and also some radio stuff, you can do radio on, on yeah. your computer. So that was good. And also then just doing so having time to write some longer projects that I wanted to do. And mm. I've been, well, now's the time you've got time also doing a lot of gardening. Uh, you know, when the weather was nice, I was outside all the time. And, also, you know, that was when you were allowed people in your garden as well. So that was good. But it's been a good way to sort of reset and think about yeah, comedy yeah. differently. I filmed some little, um, little, made little films just because I could. And then went, oh, well, this is a good chance. Why you should be 
I kind of, I'm one of those sort of people, some people just stopped and went, I'm going to have this break. And I think, well, good for you. Take yeah. that time. That is going to be equally good for you when you come back. Whereas I got, how can I still make stuff was more the way I was that I was going, oh, I could film some little things like sitting as I film some little things where I would do me on Facebook, uh, being horrendous about people. Um, so, you know, and just, and looking at other people's <laughs> posts and going, oh, fucking hate them, you know, and then going, oh, like, <laughs> so, and just, you know, that was interesting for my brain to kind of think, oh, how can I, how can I do stuff and create stuff and, and still be doing funny things and keep myself entertained, which I did. Yes, yeah, so I've been mostly, you know, I think we've all got, had a, a feeling of this is all, a, feels quite unreal underneath you know, this feeling yeah. of this sort of shifting sands, this, you know, every now and again it hits you and you go, this isn't like the real world sort of, but we are, we've all managed to, well, hopefully people managed to build something on it, you know, cling on yeah. to things that keep us going. And, and parts of it I have enjoyed. I have really enjoyed being at home. Um, my husband and I have got on very well. That's good. I've enjoyed my garden. <laughs> I've enjoyed I've enjoyed my neighbours, you know, just sort of chatting and just little bits of contact. I've loved, I'm really glad that I'd moved out of London and that we were near the sea. Yeah. You know, yeah. where we are in Leith. So having a bit, I've been very grateful to have a bit of space. I've not got a big garden, I've got a little bit of garden and I can walk up Arthur's seat. Edinburgh's a beautiful city to yeah. walk around and I'm quite near the sea. So in that way, that's, that was, you know, that was good just and uh, i i think it will come back as well i know there's been a worry that people think mm. that comedy clubs won't come back but i think it's just such a, a way for for britain and ireland as well that we're people who like to go out you know we like to dress up yeah. have a drink and be out so, so some zooms may continue because i think they are great for people who can't go out like yeah yeah if you physically can't go out or mentally you can't go out, or people with young kids, that was a couple with a baby the other night watching, you go, that's just fantastic. They can have a comedy night um, <laughs> with a newborn baby. Um, but also similarly, the brief time that clubs were open, socially distanced, and they looked weird. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, people sitting so far apart. Um, it looked like just like a, a club where they hadn't sold well. You know, it was and a very a lovely club, the Bearcat, been running for years. They just said to their people, we can't get as many of you in, but we still want to be able to pay yeah. the comics. So what do you say if we put the price up? And everyone went, fine, put the price up, you know, because they wanted it to, to work. So I, I, that's how much I think people want to go out, be in a room together. People do to want that. So I, I feel it'll come back. And I because it's a the industry's adapted so well already by, you know, putting gigs on outside, then putting distance gigs, then putting gigs on Zoom. Uh, it has really adapted. So I, I feel that, that the drive for it and, the, and that people want to laugh so much that it will find a way. Mm, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's the thing. People have had to adapt. And obviously yeah. comedians, you're, you're such a creative bunch anyway. So you kind of adapt to the current current climate, I, I suppose, to keep yourselves active and, you know, you want, you want to keep your mind ticking over. Yeah. But I yeah, mean, definitely. even like it must be, I was thinking about, um, you know, if you say you went into a comedy club and they just ended up with a lot of people just sitting there wearing masks 
you know, in, in, if if they kind of went back to what we what we're used oh, well, to. I have yeah, I've had that where they're in the audience wearing masks. Um, so wow. you, you see their eyes and you can't tell that much because you don't really see yeah, the exactly. lines where, where the laugh lines are. You don't really see that. Um, but yeah. again, you, you, you see people's body like, and you hear, you hear them laughing. So again, quite quickly, sort of all the things that you would think you needed, you go, oh, no, I can still feel that they're here and that they're laughing. I mean, it's weird, you're looking at people, really looking, because they've got a mask on, you know, and if I was to say something to them, going, I can't tell what your reaction is to that. <laughs> you know, how are you insulted? Yeah. Are you smiling? Are you okay? You know, so I think, you know, that was weird. But then again, that was also, that's what I played with. I, you know, I said to the audience, I have no idea if this woman hates me or not, you know, which is great. <laughs> um, because I feel she's a fucking bitch. You know, because you couldn't see their faces. So you have to call that out to them and, and they see it as well, you know, knowing because people, you know, everyone's had these masked conversations where you're going, oh, I can't see what you think about that. <laughs> Your face is covered. So you performed at the uh, last year's Royal Variety performance. I mean, what was that like to do? In an, and normal times, it'd be you on a stage in front of the Palladium yeah. or what have you. It was at the Blackpool Opera House, which is beautiful. Um, I was kind of pleased it was there because uh, I'd done the London Palladium once, but I've never done the Blackpool Opera House, not the main room that this was in. And it's such, it's sort of amazing, the Winter Gardens. That there's so many rooms in it, performance spaces, and mm. it's so beautiful. Um, and so they did it, and the way they did it was weird, where... I don't know what I was in. I was sort of, I suppose I thought they'd be like big screens, but when you went out, there were some big screens on the balcony, but then in the front of you was just, it was just like tellies on seats. <laughs> they just, instead of, <laughs> instead of a person, it was like a TV screen. And I thought, well, if anyone wants a widescreen telly, there's loads here. <laughs> so, so that was weird to look at that. Um, and the sound was slightly odd. And they sort of said, be aware, you just, stop then there'll be a bit of a delay and then you'll hear them um so that was weird and and also that we were sort of all distanced from each other was yeah. strange and and so you didn't have that thing afterwards of all going oh let's have a drink we've done the royal variety show and you didn't have any royals obviously yeah. um <laughs> which uh i uh which to be honest i was quite pleased about because I, I had a, went through a whole thing of like, what if I have to tug my forelock to Kate Middleton? I don't want to. I don't think she deserves it. Queenie, I'm quite happy to. Kate Middleton, I'd be like, I think you should fucking bow to me. What have you ever done but married somebody? You know. But then I, I went through a whole thing about that. But then they weren't there anyway. So that so that was amazing, and it was a it was a great thing to be asked to do, and it was purely down to Jason Manford because he yeah. we'd done a gig together like a year ago and he he just said oh, i thought you were brilliant and if i can ever do anything for you i will and you know people wow. say there you go oh. and then um they said they they asked for recommendations and he recommended me so then they said you know they said oh he's jason's mentioned you can you send us some clips and i sent clips and then they they had me on but um that wouldn't have happened without him you know so it was it was thrilling yeah. It was sort of thrilling in that way where it's really scary because you just, you know, you really want it to be good. 
And also I thought they might not let me do the material I wanted to do. I knew I couldn't swear or anything, but I did. I thought, oh, well, they think this is too harsh, but they didn't. I thought, I don't even know if you've looked at what I'm about to say, (laughs) you know, because I did stuff that was quite, quite mean, quite, quite harsh, you know, and I thought they would want stuff more kind of fluffy. Oh, she talks about her husband in a nice way. She doesn't. (laughs) So uh, I was pleased. I thought, no, it's nice to be able to do a bit of telly where you go, no, I like all of that material. I don't feel I've had to compromise apart from that can't say fuck. That's exactly the way I would be on stage, you know, without a TV crew, except that they give you fabulous makeup. And I had false eyelashes and I was like, (laughs) it was so funny because they, I was saying, I don't want much makeup. I want to look sort of like myself. I don't want to look made up, you know? And then by the end I was like, oh my God, I love what you've done. (laughs) I couldn't stop looking at myself. I was going, my God, it doesn't look like me at all. But what they do to, to your face with TV makeup, I was like, oh my God, I like it. It's not me, but I like it. You look very glamorous, you know. Oh, totally! Like I, oh, in that, stuff. I went back to the hotel room, and because uh, that was all you could do, <laughs> go back to the hotel room on your own. I ordered a glass of wine, could not stop staring at myself, and that's exactly what I did. I took a load of pictures, <laughs> like a fucking teenager. Go, oh, look at my false eyelashes. Oh, and then of course the more of the white wine I drank, the more I was like, oh my god, I look amazing. <laughs> but it was completely, completely fake. It was so much. I mean. I couldn't believe how much makeup they were putting on and then more. And they're going, how can there even be more? And they go, we have to put more. And I was like, it, one, you feel how unattractive am I that this is like <laughs> layers and layers of makeup, incredible. But through telly, you can't see it. It looks, you know, it doesn't look natural, but it looks normal in that world. You know, if you're next to steps or whatever it was, who was it? Was it steps or the other <laughs> Yeah, steps. Yeah, because they don't look normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of them do, to be honest, do they? <laughs> it must be so weird, though. You know, you you wonder how they put these lineups together for the for the raw variety. How they how they get. Well, it is really a variety, you know. isn't it? It's mm, it is yeah, jugglers and all kinds yeah. of weird and wonderful yeah, stuff. Yeah, magician. Me and Delicio being comics, sort of from my circuit, and then Steps, and then bizarrely Mel C, and then I can never remember her name. <laughs> Got one word name who do, do sings Celeste? Is it who sings the John Lewis ad? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Ball, you know uh, uh, <laughs> the, the other one from who was in Take That, who writes songs? Him? Oh, uh, Gary Gary Barlow. Barlow. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's a day of bizarrenesses where you just go, so weird that that's Mel C. Yeah. He's tiny. And, uh, yeah. oh, Gary Barlow. Oh, oh, you're the bloke who does catchphrase. Oh, your face is really <laughs> Yeah, it's just weird. I mean, it was lovely because I know Jason and I know Delisso, so that was really nice to have people to go, oh, this is weird, isn't it? Um, and I think Jason is particularly good at crossing over from that world to my world, I would say. Mm. You know, he really is an all-round entertainer, but who's good at it and not, not yeah, cheesy. Yeah. He manages to avoid that. Yeah. And he can genuinely sing and dance, you know, and do it all. At the, he's a great singer. And at the end, this was the funniest bit for me. At the end, I didn't realise 
you all have to go on stage and sing a song together. I can't remember what it was. was it Let it be or something like that. Beatles, I think, was a song anyway. And then, and we, we did it in rehearsal and Jason turned around to me and went, he said, this is when you've got to not be a comedian. You've got to just enjoy it, Joe, and sing along and smile. Because I would be absolutely, <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, what are we doing? And, uh, and I was like, oh, okay. And I was just like, oh God. And I had the dancers behind me and I was going to say, I need you in front of me because I'm going to, I'm going to sway to the wrong time. I just know I am. And then they did it, uh, the, we did it at the end of the show and I managed to do it and I was looking happy, but I was really worried because they put me right behind Jason. So I was in shot and that was the thing. Jason turned around and just winked at me. He said, you're in shot the whole time. I was like, oh fuck, I'm in shot the whole time. And then they did it at the end of the show. And then you hear the director and he said, okay, we're just going to do the last number again. And I honest to God oh, thought the next God. words out of his mouth are, and Joe, if you could move out of shot, <laughs> but he didn't. he didn't, all they wanted to do was do it again and let the confetti go. So I was like, oh, thank God for that. But I was so sure they were going to ask to move me out of shot. But, but apparently I looked That's convincing. That's obviously why they put so much makeup on you. <laughs> yeah, but I, I looked at convincing, swaying, you know, very light entertainment style, swaying and singing. <laughs> I don't think I've made a noise. They didn't give me a microphone. <laughs> I just sort of mind. <laughs> It's all very 80s, isn't it? You know, on, oh, on the, very, you know we're very in the, well, the old days. Yeah, and it made me think of sort of shows that I were on when I was a kid, like Summertime Special, where everybody was like all mucking in and much sort of jollier. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk a bit about music now. You were in a band in your younger years. People might not know that about you. Um, so who have been your musical loves over the years? Who, who, any sort of bands or artists that you followed? Um, a, a huge amount of people. And I have a very eclectic taste in music. And I go through phases mm. as well. Um, I was in a band. Uh, I was very into, this was when I was about 18. Um had come out sort of new romantic new wave you know like I like talking heads and then I got yeah. into ska and rockabilly and moved to London went out with a guy who was a rockabilly and then that became my whole life like I dressed it all my friends are rockabilly all are and I had a, like a shitty job and everything was about going out at night going to weekenders we'd go to a holiday camp in yeah, the middle yeah. of winter and uh and everyone yeah. be rockabilly. And uh, then I was in this band. Uh, I also sold rockabilly clothes. And I was really bad, not very good in the band. And I always remember it was a woman, Madeline. She came up to me in a club and she said, I really like your shoes. Um, do you want to be in a band? <laughs> and so she was quite musical. She played uh, stand up slap bass and could sing. Uh, and her boyfriend taught me how to play drums. Because he's kind of that's the simplest thing for not musical. Um, so I all I had was like I had a stand up snare drum and I had a hi hat and a bass drum. And so I sort of learned because it's quite a simple beat. I learned the basics and that was sort of what I did. And then we had a female sax player, and again her husband played guitar. And we had gigs. We're called The Girl Can't Help It, and we had gigs. And then yeah. my boyfriend, he was in a band with a guy, Sonny West, who is an amazing musician. 
um, and he's still going. He's called, what does he call himself? Mr. Wild Guitar. Um, he's, I knew him as Matt, but he's called Sonny West as a musician. And he also has a band yeah. called Congo Faith Healers. Um, so again, it was, it was blues, it was rockabilly. I was also very into ska, Trojan music. Uh, then like at the moment I'm in a, a kind of reggae phase, but I like, but I like the mixture of things. Like I listen to, um, Dub Pistols, Dread Zone. I like, I like Lovers Rock, but I, I, I like sort of dancey. Um, but at the same time, yeah. like I love to me, what I call rock and roll comes from my kind of rockabilly roots that I would like. I like Tom Petty. I like Jess Marlin, who does more kind of Americana stuff, you know. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That guitar sound, but I like a story. Um, I, I love disco as well. Then off another side, I absolutely love disco. I was dancing around the other day. He's the greatest dancer. Like, you know, that proper 70s, early 80s <laughs> disco. Absolutely love it. Um, then I came across a band, the Scandinavian, I think, and they're sort of like rock. They're like, like got a kind of rock guitar, but they're also a bit light and disco-y. I think they're called the Cocktail Slippers or something. Uh, slightly punky. It's a mixture. So I like that when yeah, people yeah. go, it's a mixture of this and that, and we've all, we've put it together. I tend not to like things that are earnest in a wrong way like I don't really like I don't like Muse, Kasabian, Elbow. Yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. that is the only kind of I don't know what I just call it worthy boring not good time music I don't like. <laughs> I like very early blues which is sort of tragic but I find there's a life force in it that makes it not yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah. I don't really like sad music. Because um, hmm. like people go, oh, do you like Joni Mitchell? I go, yeah, but I don't really. <laughs> I like I like what she <laughs> is and I admire it. Yeah, but I'm not going yeah, to yeah. listen to it because I don't want to break my heart all the time. I like Tom Waits because I like the world he creates, but I don't listen to him that much. Again, I'm like, I'm happier out there, Tom. And I like that um, yeah. netherworld of fucked upness. Uh, and I feel yeah, I yeah. was a bit in that world in the 80s. But again, I probably want to have a bit of a dance, so maybe you're not for me today, you know. Um, <laughs> I like uh, the Gimme Gimmies because they do punk versions of brilliant songs. I thought, oh, that's how I like all those songs done. <laughs> Just like fast and fun. If I wanted to cry, I'd put on, I'd do uh, Nothing Compares to You. Uh, Sinead O'Connor oh, makes blimey. me cry. Yeah just makes yeah. me cry my eyes out and who i don't want that um, but i like that i love a bit of uh love i love the clash but would more play no i do still play i played train in vain the other day actually um would play again i like that they use lots of influences and then they you hear them a lot in other music and i like some of joe Strummer stuff on his own with the mescaleros yeah, so it's it's wide ranging. Yeah, it'd be like listening to the carp carpenters. You know, you you oh, wonder how they would have nice. such a huge huge fan base, but they just make me sad. There, uh, but her voice is so great. I love the quality oh, of I her know. voice. And she was an amazing yeah. drummer. 
amazing drummer too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, you go musically, they're brilliant. And then, and that's why I, th I think often with me, I think it's, what is what is the intention of these people and, and music done well? You know, it used to be like people would go, oh, disco. And now I go, God, great disco is just great. And it, to, it yeah. I'm always looking for the thing that's got a, a fuck you life feel to it. And I think when you listen to good disco, God, that is, you know, that, that's got the rebellion that punk had because it is going, yeah. look at us, we're special, we're fabulous on the dance floor. Uh, we're not humdrum people not having fun in our lives. You know, you can't stamp us down. Yeah. And I love a dance about just, uh, I've done weirdly, I've done a lot of that in lockdown, dancing at home in my kitchen. <laughs> um, I love we've all been soul. there, we've all been yeah. there. Would you say you're a gig goer? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, my husband goes a lot. I'm mostly working when the good gigs are on. It's always like, oh, do yeah. you want to go to so-and-so? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. And then I go, oh, was it Thursday, Friday or Saturday? I'm working. So I'm often working. Um, I prefer a small gig. Um, I like to feel that, yeah. uh, that feeling of being at a small gig. I don't really like the we're miles away and they're on a screen thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know that that's the same. That will be something that will be wonderful to come back, I hope. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've th no, I've really, really enjoyed it. Lovely to talk to you. And now I'll go back to... Yeah, no, I haven't laughed that much in ages. <laughs> Good, good. We need it, don't we? Yeah. We really, really do.